This is a little video about why we today need mythology more than ever. Uh, my name is Rune Jane, PhD in History of Religions, and this is the Nordic Animism Channel. Uh, recently, the ex-president of the United States, Barack Obama, spoke about uh, the information infrastructure of our age as a truth decay. And uh, I uh, totally disagree with Obama, actually, on this point. <clears throat> I think his <clears throat> this idea of an occidental truth that can decay is uh, super problematic. And, uh, you know, Obama didn't say this, but I think it rests on this idea of a kind of Judeo-Christian sort of modernist truth, which is oppositional to another kind of story, myths. And myths are seen as misconceptions, the demonizations, all those conspiracy theories and all that stuff. And yeah, these are a kind of mythology, you could say, but decrepit, dysfunctional mythology, I would say, but mythologies or myths. Uh, and when contemporary people use the word myth, they, they, they usually mean that that's a misconception, perhaps a common mis misconception, like when people say, well, that's just a myth, right? Uh, and this is part of this idea, which paradoxically itself could probably be labeled a kind of a myth that we live in sort of a stage of progress, a movement away from this mythic savagery towards truth. <laughs> and, uh, and, and therefore we are conditioned to think about myth as something that's, that's false. Uh, and we have another kind of truth that is somehow more eternal, whether that comes from Christianity or science or, or whatever. And this modern idea, which has probably emerged in, from Christianity somehow, uh, totally also has this historic colonial baggage of classifying others as inferiors, savages still living in the land of myth, right? However, Obama is also totally right, of course, that something has gone absolutely array in the way that information information moves and flows today. I mean, how about this Sidney Powell figure who was part of the, the Trump uh, legal team recently, yet evidently uh, an absolutely raving mad woman, you know, who's incoherently rambling about how Hugo Chavez, who died seven years ago, had sort of orchestrated some elaborate plot uh, to make sure that Donald Trump didn't get reelected. I mean, it's raving lunacy, right? You know, in the legal team of the president of the United States. You know, I mean, Obama's right that something is off the rails, right? But uh, I don't think that the reason is that we are missing truth. Uh, the answer, uh, and that answer is a bit like running home to mom uh, and posing that sort of, yeah, colonial, really, idea of a golden truth that people are not adhering adhering properly to. I think our problem is that uh, is not that we have too much mythology or that we're falling back into uh, the primitive uh, stage of mythology, which is cluttering up people's rational intelligence with outrageous ideas. Um, you know, our problem, the real problem, is that we have lost the capacity to produce proper mythology. We are, in a sense, mythologically maimed. Um, and here I'll, I'll reflect a bit on how we can regain proper uh, capacity to spin myth, to, to create myth. 
Um, in scholarship, mythology can be seen from different perspectives. Some see myths as narratives that structure social reality. Some see it as like deep psychology that is peeking into human culture somehow, or as narratives that form the underlie of rituals, actually. And these sort of different perspectives, they might all have some kind of validity to them, you know, defined by the objective of what you're trying to understand about myth. Um, but yeah, I, I see myths as uh, motifs and images and narratives whose main purpose is creating relation. And this can be ritual or it can be social structuring. You know, when, when we today, today tell uh, a, a story about, our, for instance, a contemporary state, a community that rests, that this community rests on specific ideas such as freedom and equality, then this is a myth. But consider how much relation between us this myth creates. It creates legislation, civil organization, political culture, even wars, you know. And it is, in a sense, not just true, but deeper than truth, in a sense. It generates, it births our reality, in a sense. And this is a case of, of myth structuring social reality and thereby creating uh, relation between us. It probably also even creates parts of our reality that negates it, you know, the parts of that don't comply well with the idea of, for instance, equality and freedom. Um, <clears throat> now, part of what is really characteristic of the modern world, of the modernity, is that the, the, the will to rupture relation-making or specific kinds of relating. Now, the British scholar Graham Harvey, he sees modernity as characterized by a separatist agenda of disembodying minds and deanimating matter. Like, things should not have soul and our minds should not be embodied in part of our body in popular terms, right? So it makes sense, in a sense, that modernity will see myths as misinformation because myths are a way of creating relating, right? And modernity seeks to rupture this kind of relation making, right? As I've touched in, in, a, in, in another video, this uh, ruptured relation is not only between humans and other than humans, but it's also between humans and humans. We are, uh, we moderns, we are isolated and we also seek isolation and solitude, for instance, in nature, which is something that we, as these sort of isolated individuals aesthetically look at or move in and, so, and something like that, where other than modern peoples live these hyper-social life, lives where you spend all day, every day of your life together with an extended family, for instance, uh, in hearing distance of your, you know, your family. So try to imagine that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know if your uncle beats his kid because you can hear it, it's 10 meters away in another little clay hut. Right. Uh, and uh, for animists, uh, this is good. Well, maybe not the beating the kid, <laughs> the kid example there, but, uh, but the closeness. They understand that we exist in our relation. So except for specific initiations and so on, people don't seek solitude, I think, in the way that we do. I don't value it. Uh, for animists, everything is social. The forest is also social. It's a social space. Um, and mythology, you might say, is a way of socializing, creating this socializing. Perhaps you could say revealing the social around us or reve revealing reality creation as social. Right? Um, let's take an example. You can't find a, a girlfriend, right? 
So you uh, ask uh, a divination oracle, uh, what, what is the matter? And the, the runes tell you, you know, give something to the god Frey. You then go and do this, and the, you then find a woman. You then thank uh, Frey, uh, perhaps giving him an offering again. And all this relation through mythology is enforcing, of course, the relation uh, with Frey. And the myth, the underlying myth of all this relating is that Frey's agency is accessed in the oracle and through the offering and expressed, manifest in you actually finding a woman. So this myth gives intention and pers personhood to stuff that happens in your life, in this case, finding a, a girlfriend, right? This is just an example. You, you might say that it reveals uh, intentions, personhood, subjectivity in the event. It relates you to the event, not just as something that arbitrarily happens to occur, but as an encounter, uh, not as something, but an encounter with a someone that you're relating to. Uh, an encounter that is therefore, therefore reality becomes charged with intention and personal relation and subjectivity inside uh, reality. And when this way of understanding uh, reality, I think you find this universally, uh, but when it's, when it's ruptured, then our minds go weird and we start cooking up these like weird ass ideas, like, it's the feminist's fault that I can't get a girlfriend, or it's a conspiracy that created the COVID-19. Now, these are attempts to think mythologically uh, about stuff that happens, but the modernist worldview prevents uh, the people who think like this from, from thinking with proper myth-making. So they pull out of their arse these like weird and often self-defeating narratives about human actors who are engineering these or that events. Right, even though any child can see that these events like the COVID-19 are totally beyond uh, human engineering, of course, and this is dysfunctional myth-making, right? So in another video, I argued that we actually need a healthy myth-making in order to uh, relate properly to things that happen. Uh, and I want to give you a, a, an, an example of this. Climate change. <laughs> an example I tend to use, uh, modernist rational communication on, uh, on the matter has utterly failed. You know, the world's best and most cautious sober scientists and Nobel Prize winners have been standing before congregations of the entire global elites and opened a whole conference with the words, we are fucked. <laughs> And I'm not making this up, this happened. Uh, the most conservative scholars of economy have written in the most prestigious and acclaimed journal, scientific journals, encouraging people to civil disobedience. Go out, get arrested, they're saying. So everybody knows that the shit is hitting the fan and that the coming generations will see the collapse of life and human suffering, suffering on an imaginable, unimaginable scale. Right? And with all this knowledge, uh, you know, uh, perhaps, perhaps it's the first time in, in, in 2,500 years of, of history of Occidental science that all of science stands united together with one unambiguous message to all of humanity, uh, uh, like solve this shit. And it's not being heard. Why? What, what is the reason? Poli po policymakers and statements are acting as if they don't give a shit that the apocalypse is here tomorrow. Well, maybe they're trying a little bit, but, uh, but really kind of half-heartedly. Why is that? Why, why aren't they trying? The reason 
is dysfunctional myth-making. The modern world has shown incapable of narrating uh, stories that can enable our relation to this gargantuan problem. All these scientists and UN agencies, they just published yet another uh, 2,400 pages long report about ice cores and CO2 emissions and global tipping points and permafrost and methane, methane release. But nobody reads it and even fewer, you know, even gets close to understand it. Because this is not a kind of story whose function is to enable populations to create relation to anything, basically. And that is not the objective of those communications either, really. I mean, uh, so, so it shouldn't really be in any surprise that these, this kind of communication doesn't work, right? Cool. So let me give you a mythic narrative that I think people can relate to, uh, in relation to, to climate, uh, change. The Rounder Rock. The Rounder Rock. Like the myth of the Ragnarok emerged as a mythic reflection on the social collapse that ensued from climate change that occurred in Scandinavia in the 6th century. And this cooling, <clears throat> which uh, archaeologists call the Fimbul winter, was like a cataclysmic collapse in human communities. And in the following centuries, Scandinavia entered into the so-called uh, Viking Age, a period that was characterized by social change, ruptures in, in traditional life and, and knowledge forms. So the Ragnarok myth emerged as a mythic reflection on the consequences of loss of traditional knowledge uh, due to the rise, rise of Christianity and some other factors, and climate change. <clears throat> now, this is something that makes immediate sense to people. A mythic description of the existential social experience of a ruptured, collapsing world as traditional knowledge forms ha uh, have been lost. You see, how, uh, <clears throat> you see how extremely appropriate this particular myth is to, into speak specifically, uh, speaking specifically into our age. This mythic language tells us of the consequences of lost kinship with nature, lost culture uh, of custodianship and uh, relation to the land and all the cohabitants of the land. This myth is an existentially precise way, you could say, of relating to our Ragnarok, that we are, we are at the threshold of this Ragnarok. Um, in, so in a sense, the Ragnarok is a, is a prophecy that speaks very much to our time. And it doesn't only describe the social collapse and thereby relates us sensibly into our actual situation right now. In a sense, the Ragnarok myth is, is more exact, I think, than all those climate reports. And, uh, that, uh, and it holds because it holds a knowledge of those uh, lost relations and how they cause the collapse or the confluence of collapses that we're facing in biodiversity, climate, you know, democratic accountability, food security, water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So uh, the myth enables building relation to something in this rather extreme case, it is a life collapse that we're facing, but as mentioned, you know, uh, uh, this kind of mythic relating could probably apply in all kinds of different situations. Basically, the stories that enable us to meet the world as an encounter with other than humans. And these stories call us into relation with the world. They invoke, in a sense, you know, they also invoke uh, uh, the other than humans, call them into relation. The story of the Ragnarok interpolate something in the world as personal. For instance, the drive toward destruction that are interpolated, perhaps as Jotnar, that we have lost bond with contact with and they're, they're uh, uh, becoming destructive because we are uh, have lost yeah contact with them somehow. Um, 
They're the forces who want to protect, uh, uphold the harmonious existence. They're interpolated as the Aesir and the Varnir deities. And they, uh, and, and perhaps we can strengthen our bond. The myth helps us strengthen our bond with those forces <clears throat> that fight for the harmonious existence. And this is just one example of how a myth story, myth story based language can teach us to relate better to a world where, uh, you know, uh, that is going away in this particular way. But there are probably many other examples, right? And, um, yeah. And in the next video, I'm going to give you a very current example of a myth that we very much need right now in this exact historic moment. A myth that has already emerged. It's just emerged in India. A new goddess that has been born and which we urgently need to uh, relate with for a lot of many reasons. And that is the goddess Corona. Thank you very much and see you around.